0: Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Larissa Whitaker.
1: I'm Ben Clemmer. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Steve Stahoski. Today, we're going to look back at a film that has influenced the past 50 years of American culture. I don't think anybody could look at American film and television now and imagine it without The Godfather. So we, the Storytelling Breakdown team, decided... We should probably watch The Godfather For those of you who don't know The Godfather turned 50 on March 24th of 2022 We were supposed to talk about it in March But unfortunately my immune system decided to kick me in the butt After <laughs> I spent all day St. Patrick's Day carousing with the ragtag bunch And having a really good time So they recorded the Legacy <laughs> s- sequel episode part 1 They being the rest of the storytelling breakdown team Well it's good to have you back I'm very glad to be back and to talk about (laughs) one of my most favorite movies of all time. Let's just dive in. Yeah, I think a
2: good starting point is to talk about each of our first viewing experiences because Larissa got to watch it for the very first time.
0: I did. I had so many questions. (laughs) You were all so patient with me. (laughs) So many Italian names. So many Italian names.
3: So
1: yeah, that was your first time watching the movie. Yes. Was with, with all of us.
0: Could I cut though and pass it to you guys first, and I go last? Is that yeah, okay? I like that.
4: Well, well that would that be a, sure. that would be an interesting question if we each are going to talk about our first viewing. I all probably. I feel like the three of us probably saw relatively close to the same time frame, or it's kind of like, yeah, you're old enough. Yeah, I think I so. So late I was tweens, 12. early teens. <sighs> yeah, was, yeah, yeah. I, so. I think I was twelve yeah. or thirteen yeah. the
1: first time. My dad said, "Yeah, we can watch it." And this. it might have been just slightly later for me. Yeah, and it was my dad. It was my dad who 100. percent Show me this movie. I think we caught the tail end of it on FX or AMC or something. And he says, oh, yeah, I have that. And uh, Let's watch it. And there's something that just kind of feels stereotypical about, well, my dad showed me this movie. And that's why I love this movie. And it's really not. I love this movie. And I probably wouldn't have come to love this movie if I hadn't seen it with my dad first. But the older I've gotten, the more I've appreciated the movie. Not because it's a, it's a mafia film, which I actually don't think it is but because it's a film about family. It's not about the mafia. You could put the, the Corleone family into Game of Thrones, make them a lord, a noble house, and the story still sells.
4: Yeah, it's a story of succession regardless of genre. It's a story yeah. of succession. It's a story about the family
1: regardless of the genre. It just happens to take place in a mafia film. And I think part of what has made it maybe necessarily not age as well, which I don't actually agree with that statement, but part of what I think people will look at it and say maybe this hasn't aged very well over the past 50 years is because it is a popular movie. But my, my first experience was with my dad. And I remember we got to the end of the film and I said, Dad, I think we have to start it over. <laughs> and he goes, are you nuts? My dad's a movie guy, but very, very specific movies. Does my dad care to watch? And mm. he will not rewatch a movie if he's seen it in the past five years, uh, which is interesting because there is one thing he will rewatch annually, and I think it might actually be featured later on this very episode, so we'll save that. But I said to him, I, I, "We need to restart this," and he goes, w- "Why on earth would we restart this three-hour movie right now?" And I said, "Because I I didn't get everything the first time, and I don't think I get everything now." So There's did you so much there? I I restarted. Okay, my twelve or thirteen year old self completely stayed up to one AM. That, that's impressive. That movie.
2: The only movie I have watched, finished, and then immediately restarted again is Shrek Two.
0: <laughs> Mine is Mega Mind entangled. Dude, I love
2: Mega
1: Mind. <laughs>
0: and the Lego movie. I love Mega Mind Lego movie.
1: I don't think I would I don't think I I mean I wouldn't watch it back to back more than once unless like my two year old was going, let's watch it again. Let's watch it I again. I would hang
0: out be like, let's watch the Lego movie about six times I mean, and then maybe yeah, I'll get tired. <laughs>
2: So I have a similar viewing experience, not with The Godfather, but my father showed me the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, He was the one who introduced me to that. And it was just the two of us for a weekend. We cooked steaks and we watched all three movies. It was great. Mm -hmm. My mother was actually the one who introduced me to The Godfather. And it was a similar experience. I think it was just the two of us like home alone for a weekend. And somehow I got brought up where I was like, oh yeah, I've never actually seen that. And she was like, what do you, what do you mean you've never seen that? So like we went out and got them. I don't know, from the library or rented them or something. And yeah, we just watched all three that weekend. So,
4: See, I will continue the trend of it being a familial experience because for me it was uh, watching it with my brother and uh, and other members of our family visiting him out in Washington, D.C. when he lived out there. I remember having it at that point. Obviously, it's well built up as a classic in our culture, and I know that it's like, okay, this is a box I need to check also at that point getting an appreciation for just how young everybody is because at that point I've seen a lot of other actors and players and other things and then yeah it's a lot to take in on first viewing and as I'm processing this now I'm kind of laughing at the fact that watched with dad watched with mom watched with siblings and the familial track ends with Larissa who watched it with a bunch of dudes from College and post college,
0: <laughs> <laughs> my storytelling breakdown family. Yes, indeed. <laughs> say, yeah, oh,
2: we can we'll call back to the James Gunn episode. There's a found yeah. family here.
4: Yeah, hundred percent. Oh goodness. <laughs>
1: it with us and thankfully you had a guy with a really strange almost hyper obsession with it who can answer all your questions
0: yeah i'm curious in your first viewing experiences Stephen, you mentioned that you watched it and then you watched it a second time to understand what had happened what was it like before i share mine i'm curious to know more about how you understood the film the first time you saw it because i misunderstood so much of it without your guidance
2: i think if you can it's remember. hard for me to remember, because yes, this was one I has twelve, which was a number <laughs> of years ago. um I think I understood like the broad strokes of the story, but to pay attention to like the side characters and you know all the little side stories going on that required like multiple viewings. like I never really understood Luca Brazzi's importance to the story until yeah, like he's, in, he's on the screen for yeah 20 he's minutes, he's in it even. for like a tiny amount. But everyone always talks about him. Yeah, he's Um, very important. And yeah, I didn't understand that until, you know, years later. For the most part, it was just, okay, I know, he's the dad, these are his sons, this son gets killed, this son takes over, all right, I got Mm. this.
1: My 12, 13-year-old understanding of the movie was not the more mental aspects of the movie, the more uh, emotional and thoughtful aspects of the movie. It was the understanding of the physical beats. I knew who the players were, and I knew what happened. Mm. And I could walk you through the events of the movie, but I couldn't say this movie isn't about the mafia at 13. I wouldn't have been able to say that because...
0: That's reasonable. I didn't have that (laughs) understanding.
1: I also Mm -hmm. didn't have my own family then. Well, I did, but I was not a married man with kids Mm. then. That has changed my personal outlook on a lot of things just because it's a very different place in life to be. I think I appreciate The Godfather in a very, very different way than I did then. Then it was a cool movie about these really slick dudes doing things that are just outrageously kind of awful but really awful but outrageous and larger than life and there was something kind of primally to be admired Mm. about that.
0: I sense a lot of power in watching it and I imagine that that's something that a lot of people connect with or understand because it's a story about power more than it Mm -hmm. is even about and I don't know maybe this is just my personal understanding but a story about power even more so than about interpersonal connection and relationships beyond a business orientation of them right
4: well and that's where as i think about my first viewing and i will tie this back to what you were just saying larissa when we have something that has resonated in the culture the way the godfather has for the past 50 years i think when i first watched it, i didn't really have a full appreciation for what i had just seen it's like okay yeah it was good i i, I get why People find it impressive generally, but I didn't give it much more thought until probably in college because at that point we were all learning a little bit more about how movies are made. And then going back and experiencing the film again and you're just going, oh, holy <laughs> There's so much here. Just all of the moving parts to doing an extended set piece for the wedding at the beginning of the film. The way that certain decisions are made and just to, to what extent... The works that resonate as strongly as they do and we to tie this back to our James Gunn conversation when the creator, the writer, the director is showing so much of themselves in their work for Coppola it's understanding the Italian heritage and the family aspect and just how all of that is tied together and you have an amazing story that you can't talk about the family without talking about the gangster aspects and that's true of both the movie and of the lives of the characters, because Michael can't talk about his family without having to deal with whatever's going on with the gangster aspects,
0: and meshed.
4: Yeah, and it, and it's so you do. He has throughout the film so many moments and areas where he kind of has this. He can't escape it. He has to make what decision he thinks is best for his family, and it draws him further into the gangster Just
1: life. When I think I'm out, yep, <laughs> they pull, pull me back, back in. in. <laughs> part three, as much as people hate it, I think, yeah, it's part three.
2: Part of my initial attraction to it is it's very Shakespearean, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I was introduced to Shakespeare at a very young age. Me too. Um, oh. Me yeah. too. Yeah, my it was a parents tragedy. read Shakespeare's plays to me, you know, as a child. No and yeah, kidding. you can recognize Hamlet and Macbeth and all the tragedies and stuff. Like well, the same marks
1: and beats, especially Shakespeare's historicals, the Hollow yes. Crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a godfather movie that's what it is it's it's all right there and when i mean the godfather was that movie that almost didn't get made it was trying to be a movie by committee with a director who in the very first place didn't want to do it and wanted to make a movie that wasn't just another knockoff bestseller it's very shakespearean you could very easily see the plot points of the story happen in a shakespearean play or in game of thrones or in practically any other setting or in succession was, or in yeah. succession so it's it's not a movie about the mafia and when i was 13 i didn't know that but i i think i do now
0: i'm sure there are plenty of viewers in our demographic who may also not be aware of that because i think it takes a critical eye to understand what's happening underneath the what that you're being presented with right mm-hmm. Like, you have to spend time thinking about the movie or caring about the movie to get that reading out of it versus being like, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened.
1: And there's a lot. There's a lot that happens. Just yeah. even in just that first movie, we're not talking about the second and third parts, which maybe we talk about that third one because I'm, I watched it last night, like I said, <laughs> and at 2 o'clock in the morning, my brain was like, this isn't as bad as y'all keep telling me it is,
5: <laughs> and I was there the very first time
1: I watched it. I was there with, man, this is garbage. But it's not. Maybe we don't get into that today, yeah. but it's not garbage beside I mean, the
4: plate. Yeah, and when we had our conversation for Meeting of the Five Families, where we first kind of started to unpack the the gangster genre and storytelling breakdown, we gave a lot of love, of course, to the Godfather and the Godfather Part Two. Part Two is probably I mean, better than Number One. Yeah, actually. I mean, just so many amazing performances and set pieces that we. Highlighted in longer form there. I think maybe Larissa, to an extent, you're not getting the benefit of the repeated viewings because mm-hmm. I think, and this is also, you and I both have uh, gone through and watched some materials. In fact, some of the things you were throwing me, it's like, I think I might have found a bonus oh, feature yeah, very, online, I'm sure. possible. Yeah, and, I, and then I found a, another video that another creator made that very much talked about just Michael's personal journey mm. and how we see him from going, that's the family, that's not me, at the wedding, at the beginning of the film, to don't you ever take sides against the family again. Just, and just all of the different aspects of his character and his personality that change from being a soldier who's experienced fighting in the war and now is coming home and is going to have a completely different life to the point that, okay, now he's in the field fighting for his family and now he's a general giving orders. It's okay, Pop. I'm with you now. I'm with you now.
1: Yep. Before we launch into some of those scenes yes. of the movie that, that are just so, just so well done, it was your first experience, he says, looking directly at Larissa. Yes. Pointing at her. So your first me, experience.
0: I watched it. I <laughs> think that I am not the target demographic for this film, a 20-something uh, white woman from the 21st century. <laughs> it's not made for me, and that's okay. Not everything has to be for me. And there are a lot of aspects of the film that made me uncomfortable, even though I could recognize the quality of craft through which the story was told
4: coppola kind of gets the if you're looking at groundbreaking filmmakers of the beginning of the blockbuster era his work is definitely the most adult in the darkest when you compare him to the likes of lucas and to spielberg mm-hmm. some of his contemporaries and also some of their thoughts as that movie was getting made are just amazing like george lucas ta- basically telling coppola do it get paid for it and then go do something you want you to do. do.
3: <laughs> yeah. So
1: Lucas, Spielberg, and Coppola were all involved in Zoetrope Studios, mm-hmm. yep. which was their own independent film studio, not in Hollywood, that was going belly up. Well, that's why they're all called the movie brats, right? Uh-huh. Because they were all... They were all involved. Yeah. And that Lucas was literally looking at Coppola, who's being offered a deal by Paramount to do The Godfather, and saying, we... The conglomerate here, we need the money, man. (laughs) So please just do it. Get it over with. Do what they want. It'll be a movie that no one will remember in 10 years, but we'll get paid. (laughs) And Coppola, when he finally did agree to take the movie, he refused, adamantly refused, to make the movie the way they wanted it.
0: He would not compromise his vision.
1: No. Once he figured out that there was a vision to be had, because he was convinced that the, the novel that Mario Puzo wrote was garbage. Uh, It was vulgar, it was romanticized, it was flashy, and it wasn't at all what he wanted to tell. As an Italian-American who grew up in in the East Coast and then moved to the West Coast after after study and knew how the mafia affected the lives of other Italian-Americans on the East Coast. He didn't want to tell that romanticized story. So he went ahead and told his own with Mario Puzo as one of the leading scriptwriter, as the lead scriptwriter and himself, and flew in the face of the executives of Paramount. And Paramount was in such a weird, weird time. In 1970, probably up until the pandemic, 1970 held a record of the lowest movie theater attendance in history. You have
4: a couple of factors at play there. The blockbuster era as we know it hadn't really started yet. Late 1960s into the 70s. You have the fact that Mm -hmm. we don't have so many of the blockbuster films that we associate with being as groundbreaking as they were, because Star Wars wouldn't come until 77, Jaws in 75. And you also have the fact that you're coming out of the 1960s and the counterculture movement and just to what extent things that were perceived as kind of having come before are getting completely ignored by the young generation at that point. They didn't have interest in... The yeah. movies and the genres and the the stories that came before. Well, and Hollywood and so you hadn't need, yeah. adapted yet. No, and, and it, it and it took young creators like those from Zoetrope to mm-hmm. make that happen. So that is why we kind of see the darkness before the dawn that was to come with the likes of Coppola and Lucas. To so put and it in
1: perspective, in the late 1960s, Paramount was purchased by West and Gulf because <laughs> I know I remember this because. Uh, You've, have you seen Silent Movie? Silent Movie is a direct riff on this entire situation. And in Silent Movie, the film studio that everybody is part of gets purchased by...
4: Engulf and Devour. Engulf
1: and Devour. <laughs> oh, no. In the late 1960s, Paramount was purchased by Weston Gulf for $600,000. Wow. An entire studio? All of it. All of Paramount Studio. Everything that they owned was purchased for six. $100,000. Silent Movie
4: just one of my favorite moments that lets you know just what the hell you're in for at the beginning of the film <laughs> is when you've got Brooks, Dom DeLuise and Marty Feldman are the three in the uh-huh. car at the beginning of the film. God, Dom yeah. And <laughs> they Feldman does something and Brooks you see him reply and you can read his lips he just went you son of a and then a silent move because it, it is a silent film. You don't hear him say that. The card comes up saying what he just said, and it goes, "You bad boy."
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the that's the setup. He is huh. he's making fun of it. Yeah. He's riffing on the fact that Paramount got bought out by this conglomerate from the East Coast with a board of directors that lived in New York and never been to Hollywood for because they, I mean. At the time, people were speculating that they were just going to sell the real estate. They'd make more money on just selling the land.
0: And we're talking late 1960s, early 1970s, before The Godfather was released in 1972, correct?
4: Yeah. Yeah. So that's the state of the general movie landscape. Yeah. And then within Paramount, Coppola was, and this tells you even more kind of about the state of things and what his situation was, although I I can't remember who said it in one of the the featurettes about The Godfather Mm -hmm. just talking about...
1: Coppola does his best
4: work when he's under the gun.
1: Yeah, <laughs> And well, he very much was Evans. with The Godfather because he Robert had to fight Evans for so said much. That. Yep. Robert Evans said that, yep. I think. Just recently at the Oscars,
4: Coppola thanked two people by name, Puzo was one, and I think Evans was the other one.
1: Robert Evans was the senior chief producer for Paramount Pictures when it got bought. And he actually put together a video promo to send to the board of directors where he said, we have the rights to... Mario Puzo's The Godfather, which at the time was one of the top-selling books of the past decade. And he was essentially begging the board of directors to keep him on and let him make the movie. He didn't even have a director yet. He was sitting on the biggest book of the past ten years, and he couldn't get someone to direct it. Nobody wanted to do it. The last big mafia movie that Paramount had made had been an absolute flop. And that was only, like, two years before, in 1969 or 68. So Robert Evans finally convinces Coppola to go ahead and do it, and then hires a second director to follow Coppola around because he was convinced he was going to have to fire Francis Ford Coppola. There was a second director on set every day just waiting for the phone call to replace him.
0: That sounds awful. Can you imagine working and there's somebody looking over your shoulder, like, with twingly fingers mm-hmm. getting ready to snatch your jab? It'd be the worst. Ready?
1: It would be the worst.
0: Ugh. That sounds stressful.
1: And he wasn't, he wasn't the only person in that situation going into that movie. Nobody wanted Al Pacino. He was a nobody. Nobody had heard of him. He hadn't done any major films yet. They did almost $400,000 worth of screen testing. They saw 100 actors easy for the role of Michael. And Coppola just kept popping Pacino in. And Al Pacino talks about in one of the interviews... Talks about how difficult it was to, uh, to work in an environment where he knew nobody wanted him around. Crew members and, and, and producers would laugh when I came onto screen, when I came into camera view. I could hear them snickering. And he, he finally he just said, you know, quoting him, F- it, I'm going to do it anyways. Mm-hmm. They even had James Caan read for Michael. There's, there's screen testing you can watch. Of James Caan reading for Michael, and it's so weird.
4: Yeah, when you're so used to his portrayal of Sonny. I mean, but the studio fought Coppola on Pacino. They fought him on Brando.
1: They fought him so hard on Brando that Brando had to sign a an agreement with the studio that he would not, quote, cause shenanigans that would delay production. Shenanigans <laughs> was in the legal language.
0: That's awesome shenanigans. <laughs>
1: it's it's just insane. So The he, Godfather itself, we look at this movie 50 years later and we're like, this <laughs> is a staple of the culture. But the production was a mess. Have, nobody wanted it. It's like the film that no one wanted that turned into what saved Paramount Pictures.
0: How does that happen? Like, do you think that tension is reflected in the... I don't know if this is a fair word, but in the cynicism of the film, maybe this is just because it is a quote-unquote like mafia movie, but I feel like there's this neglect of the humanity of all the main characters, and most especially of all the supportive characters, like of the women in the story, and the men treat themselves and each other, and the women especially as pawns in the story. I don't know if that's... What was originally intended, but it's interesting to think about how the movie feels, at least for me to watch, in the context of what some of the onset experiences were like for its creators.
2: That's interesting, the bit you brought up about Pacino saying, ah, f- it, I'm gonna do it anyway, because I, I can kind of see that in the movie. Yeah, because there is that shift where he's like, oh f- it, I'll just murder this police captain and this guy who's coming after my
4: family. Well, funny, you should say that.
1: Yeah, it's funny, you should bring that scene specifically up. That's the scene that saved the movie. Ah. When the board saw the dailies of that scene, they got on board. When they finally saw specifically the scene where Michael murders the two men in the cafe, they said, okay, all right, we can get behind this. They didn't pull the second director yet. (laughs) They didn't.
5: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. But
1: they started easing Ah. up a little bit. I can't You're doing imagine. a good job, but we're going to keep this I can't guy here just how, how, watching. I can't imagine how Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> would have felt, because the man was 30, 32?
0: 29.
1: Married, three children, and making this movie. I cannot imagine being married with two kids being under that kind of stress. So I own the 2008 Francis Ford Coppola Restoration Edition of the Godfather Trilogy. There we go. In the bonus features, there you can watch the stream test that... Robert De Niro did of Sonny. Oh, that's cool. It's terrifying. Sonny has this weird charism about him. He's charismatic and you kind of like him a little bit. He is a killer. And he's a hothead. But there's something about him that you kind of sort of feel gra- you gravitate towards.
0: A sexiness?
1: A little bit. Mm-hmm. I think I think James Caan was very sexy as Sonny. I really do. Robert De Niro is all of that intensity, all of that potential for violence with nothing about him that you like. There's mm. no play. It's all mm. killer. Mm-hmm. Cold. It was terrifying. Yeah, yeah I, I can I see, see how why they chose. that. I, yeah, I can see how it. that wouldn't work. But thankfully, he screened. He did the screen test for the first one because that means he got the role of Don Vito Corleone in the second one. Young Don Vito Corleone. Yeah, he's a perfect young Vito. The more I watch the second two films, and again, I just watched the third one last night, and I stand by my statement. It's not as bad as <laughs> everybody thinks it is the more I appreciate the whole story. Because it is about Michael. It is about his rise and his fall. And the third movie is about how he has succeeded. So the whole overarching story is about succession. But it's also about this weird dynamic of men in power and what they're willing to do to protect their family in their mind.
0: I find that fascinating in the context of this being such an influential film that is continually returned to for what it has given, quote-unquote, given to culture. And I'm not saying it hasn't given things. I just think it's interesting to think about how we keep talking about The Godfather, and I haven't done thorough research. But based on the discussion I've seen of it in light of the 50th anniversary, I wonder about how we encounter this story that has difficult content within it in the context of our values today. Does that make sense as a statement?
4: Well, one of the uh, tie-ins that's very easy to make. And I think the, the speaker I saw talking about this specifically referenced like Michael's rage, especially kind of towards the third act as he's taken power. You can find direct lines between that and a character like Tony Soprano. And what we know today of, prestige television would not be what it is without the Sopranos you don't
1: get the Sopranos without the Godfather yep and the Sopranos constantly reference the Godfather because it's the first time you have a show about men who would have been growing up with the Godfather men who are mobsters who grew up with the Godfather you don't get the Sopranos without the Godfather you don't get several episodes of South Park the Simpsons without the Godfather one of the Rugrats films One of the entire Rugrats films is just The Godfather. Or at least the intro. Oh, gosh. It's insane where you see The Godfather pop up. I think that's the
4: first
2: time I recall uh, it being referenced. It's directly referenced in one of my all-time favorite movies, You've Got Mail, with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. He writes a whole email. He writes a whole email about, about how the, the Godfather, Godfather
1: has all the answers to life. I remember this now. Mm-hmm.
0: That's fascinating because you can see these sort like n- like surface level, clear representations, like parodying scenes from the Godfather or how The Sopranos makes those direct connections to the content of the story. I'm interested in what is being communicated thematically through the Godfather story that has continued in our culture today or been affirmed and built up around it because there's a reason why it resonated with audiences in the first place and we've continued to uplift this film and consequently the messages in it over the last 50 years but i'm interested to sit with what those messages are and how we see them reflective of or influential to culture depending on your perspective i
2: think there's a catharsis in it Especially for young men, because it is a power fantasy on some level. You can see yourself as Michael, especially if you're a young man, and you can question your mind what would I do in that situation or how would I react? Michael is very appealing because he is smart, and everyone wants to think that they're smart. He's also very callous. cold. He's very cold and very callous. And yes. Uh, yeah a lack of humanity Do you like think you he experiences joy? I think he experiences a form of it
4: Yeah it's a power fantasy because we watch Michael get to Become more, become Colder become more calculating We to, watch him to, win too yeah, to, to give yeah, into those baser while. instincts And come out on top At the end of the first
1: film The thing is I never liked Michael I still don't like Michael Up until the third film And you do see him actually Be joyous it's very weird I always liked Sonny all day, every day. I always thought Sonny was the. I felt like, well, I felt like he got gypped. There was more scenes that unfortunately had to be cut out of the movie because of certain executives that James Conn didn't get along with. You're also an oldest child. But I'm also the oldest child. I see the pressure of. Uh, see, I'm, a young, I'm the youngest <laughs> child, right? <Same>. Yep. <laughs> I see the pressure of this kid is going to do this. This is my oldest, says Don Vito Coglione. This is my oldest. He is going to f- succeed me. This is Fredo. Nobody cares about him. Poor Fredo. Middle child. And this is Michael. He's going to be the golden boy. He's the baby. He's going to become a senator. He's going to be a senator. Mm-hmm. Or, or the president.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs>
1: or, or, you know. Judge Corleone. Been, uh, Judge Corleone. Judge <laughs> Corleone. <laughs> and so I see that. And I saw that growing up. And so I always gravitated towards Sonny. And I think part of what has made that film, this film resonate, particularly with young men, is, is that... You see this power trip. You also see the focus on the family is very much so on the men. And so when you say family, you also have to bring in the word fraternity. The, the brotherhood of these men It's another level. And it's something I think that a lot of guys don't actually get to experience. It is... Yes, I would
2: agree. There's a there's a brotherhood appeal to it. It's kind of like the darker, more violent version of The Fellowship from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> a little yeah, bit. Yeah, where you get mm-hmm. to see Clemenza and Michael have this camaraderie going on. And when they're all sitting around drinking coffee, joking, you know, Tessio too and Sonny. Yeah, you feel that, oh, these guys are friends. They actually get along with each other. But yeah, there's just this dark undertone to everything.
0: May I? I'm going to try to do something that is very difficult to do on its own and particularly difficult to do at this moment in time and however you want to take it. Can I hold two contradicting perspectives as truth at the same time that this film is well made and has meaning for Audiences, depending on how you come to it. And it's also a terribly challenging film to watch, depending on your perspective that you have going into it. The story opens with men responding to a terrible assault that happened to a woman that's not about the woman. It's not about what she wants or what she needs in response to that situation. It's about how everybody else is offended or hurt by what has happened to her, even though it's not their experience. And it closes with... A brother killing his brother-in-law, taking away his sister's husband, lying about it, and then lying to his own wife about what had happened. And so all of the experiences from the beginning to the end of the story that are held and lived by women are not about the women's truth of that time or of that moment, but about how it affects the egos of the men around them.
2: No, I totally agree with that statement. I think it's, it's also telling that, in my opinion which I guess is kind of weird. But in my opinion, the hardest scene to watch and the most violent one is when Connie is hit by her husband and abused by her husband. And you, in the story, she is merely a plot device in that. It's just to get Sonny to a point where he can be assassinated. Like her reaction to it and the effect it has on her is not even shown in the film.
1: That scene wasn't going to exist. Paramount called Francis Ford Coppola and said, hey, um, your dailies don't have enough violence. We're sending you a, a violence director. Oh, wow. This is a gangster film. It doesn't have enough violence. And so Coppola sent them that. That day, they sat, he and Mario Puzo sat down and said, hey, they're going to send us a violence director. I don't want him around. I've got enough problems to deal with that as it is. We already know that Connie's marriage is rough. Let's uh, Let's show it. And so they did. They put the, the hardest, most uncomfortable scene in the whole movie put together simply because the powers that be thought it needed more violence. And I think it is the most violent scene in the whole trilogy. Yeah, There's loads of scenes where lots of guys die. Mm-hmm. But there is not a scene in that trilogy that is that explicitly violent.
0: Because it's about power. I think like in the other situations, it's about men with guns fighting other men with guns in some capacity. But Connie has nothing like Mm -hmm. she has to rely on all the men in her life. She can't fight him back when something is happening to her, like the abuse in her marriage. She has to rely on him still being there because she has no way to stand on her own at that time, especially with the film being framed as taking place in the 1940s. Like what else is she going to do? And so when her husband is taken away, it's still not about helping or saving her. Like you said, it was a plot device to move things forward, um, and other elements of the story, or retribution for what happened to Sonny. hasn't I don't know how to end that. That's thought.
2: important too. When he when Michael has Carlo killed, he doesn't care that about he Connie. Yeah. It's not about Connie. abused his sister. He's no. mad
1: that he killed his brother. And because there's a deleted scene where Sonny is going to do something about Carlo. Carlo and Connie are arguing. They're at their father's house. And Sonny says, ah, somebody's got to do something about this. I'm going to go talk to this guy. And Vito Colleon grabs Sonny and puts him back in his chair and says, you never come between a man and his woman. His woman. Exactly. Yeah. And from a 1901 Italian immigrant in a world that did not have the same respect... For everyone's rights as we do now And we're still working on it And we're still still really working on it That line made sense But it didn't make sense to Sonny Sonny's like no my sister's being hurt I need to do something about it Now maybe it's not necessarily Completely Sonny's responsibility to do something about it And we see him attempt to do something about it In the movie we still see that And it maybe is one of the reasons Why I gravitate towards Sonny's a lot Because I do have two younger sisters But that was an attempt of Francis Ford Coppola, I think, to start to show that maybe the women are more important than than I'm giving them credit for. The best part of the third movie, Connie is practically a conciliary at the end of that. She is there with Michael 100%. She advises Vincent Mancini. He is Michael's successor. And Connie is advising him and Michael. And Michael actually says in the third movie to Connie... You know I think you might be more dangerous than I am And a lot of people give the third movie A ton of flack But the the fact that Connie went from An abused plot point Literally To advisor to the king Made me feel a lot better About the third movie Because, And that's one of the things about Gangster films we've gone over it before Gangster films don't treat their female Characters well they never do, and we haven't started seeing that change until more recent primetime type television.
4: Yeah, when we talked about Peaky Blinders and Boardwalk mm-hmm. Empire, they they do a much better job of handling their female characters. I mean, this the shows are still still have a ton of graphic content to them, and really no one is spared of it. But they're handled better, and their stories are they are given agency in those stories that you don't find in The Godfather.
1: No, and there's a scene as well with Kay. In the third movie, that it gives her back the agency that she should have had in the first movie.
0: It almost and I haven't seen them. Um, I, I haven't seen the second or third parts of the Godfather. But to b- throw in another Marvel comparison, if that's useful, <laughs> it almost seems like the way that that franchise apologized retroactively for how they treated Black Widow versus
4: when one of Tony's lines in the first scene she's in is "I want one." Yeah, one of the gangster movie tropes that we talked about when we did five families is the the gang is a boys club
0: i like i'm a a woman watching this movie so i don't know what it's like to watch this movie as a man so i don't know if this is something that will resonate with you or not but i wonder when you watch it how it displays what's successful or having watched it at a formative age like what you took away or how you think that that reflects or influences what to you you are supposed to be like if that's how you interpreted consciously or unconsciously parts of the story and what it's communicating when someone like Fredo is like on throughout both of the like he's not as much of a man whatever that means as the other men in the story I'm curious about what you think this is saying about manhood and what if you find that limiting if you find that challenging if you find it affirming
4: Coming back to Coppola because in capturing the lens through which we experience it, it's always helpful to go back to his and the things that he did very well. Obviously, we've already hit on, to an extent, his integration of Italian culture and just so much of what he knows that found its way into the movie and and inform the way the story is told. And then also other elements that he wanted to interweave. Like when you're talking about a story of, of succession and in the modern era, it's also going to have elements of critique of capitalism. And you put all that together. It's a it's a family story. It's Michael coming into his own, but coming into his own is also a fall. But he's also not necessarily having to listen to his better angels. And there's just all sorts of elements that make up that. As we've already hit on it to an extent of power fantasy. Mm. You have also the fact that then the three of us as tweens and teenagers seeing this, seeing Michael still be successful at least by the end of the first film, have his family, in that context referring to Kay, have the crime family and have power control over it and having beaten his rivals.
0: Because, like, on paper, that's supposed to be a fulfilling life, right? Like, I feel like... I can't speak for you guys, but I know that when I see uh, depictions of women that don't align with what I want out of life, I feel limited. Like, I feel like boxed in by the story that I'm receiving and I'm just curious if that's something you experience too because this is such a narrow lens of how a person can be in the world and it's also a deeply revered and widely praised story and I just don't know what that's like from your perspective compared to mine.
1: I saw two kinds of success both of which I disagreed with. You see the candle that burns brightest lasts the shortest in Sunny. He was the Don for a minute but his just over the top personality got him killed. He's and the Grey
4: Wind. If we're gonna keep likening it to Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah.
1: He's Rob Stark. He's there. He is he's on top of it. He's living it up. He's the life of the party. But it was too much and he burned out or got riddled with bullet holes. Then you see Michael, who is the other version of success. And his version of success is is more of this false American idea of what it means to be successful, in my opinion, where he is completely devoted to all the wrong things. Where he should have been spending time with his wife and his kids, he was working. His business was dark and seedy and scary, but that's what he was doing. And he sacrificed his own personal happiness, the happiness of his wife, the happiness of his children, for the success of... That he thought was going to buy them the happiness. Mm -hmm. So when I finished these movies.
0: That sounds familiar.
1: When I finished these movies by the end of let's say maybe turning 17, 18, 19. I realized as I started to get a more sophisticated understanding of the movie. Successful men aren't happy.
0: That's a tough outcome to have to live with because if you just look at the first part and that's the part we go back to and everybody's like the godfather, like it ends as though Michael is successful and winning. Mm. And I just feel like I would feel stuck. I wouldn't like that.
1: I just re- I just redefined my my idea of what success meant.
0: Yeah, but that—I I that's very sp-
1: difficult to do. I, I get it. But Here, that is what I did.
0: That's one of the many places where I feel challenged by this film because even though you did that work to have it afterwards, that's not something that's shown within the context no, of the story. it's
4: not. No, it mm. completely
1: isn't. You're correct.
4: Well, and this is where Godfather is, well, it's blazing a trail and it isn't. It's not blazing a trail in that the tragedy is not a new genre. It's different though and in, in kind of riding the wave of the audience imagination in the early 70s And that it's a tragedy, even though it's juxtaposed with a rise. And Mm. you have all of these interesting layers that make up that story. And and there's also just side note, because, again, just watching the different creators at the time and, and creatives that we know and love to this day talk about it. Like Steven Spielberg, one of his reactions was just. He felt like he should quit making movies because he felt he would never be able to achieve what Coppola achieved with The Godfather. Or you have someone like John Turturro, who's an amazing actor, who saw it at age 15 and was completely mesmerized by it. And also, having seen The Batman, you can definitely see some shades of Vito Corleone in his portrayal of Carmine Falcone. Anyway, because The Godfather is, as we keep coming back to, is about family. And it's, in a lot of ways, a coming-of-age story for Michael even if the end result is tra- a tragic one, part of the tragedy is we are seeing, oh, this is what Vito had to go through to get here. Like th- this, No one is absolved of this. Like, and, it's one, and that's definitely one of the struggles when you're watching a movie that either one, doesn't have many or any redeeming characters, or two, the ones it does have, it sidelines, which it very much does. And you have to watch Michael... Grow in power and influence, and grow as a person, even in tragic ways. The conclusion I would draw here is that we watch Michael go on this journey, and between the success, both financially and in influence, and just everything he's able to do, and finding and finding himself in the seat of power at the end of the film, it's one of. The, and we see this with a lot of movies. In fact, going back to our first ever episode, Caleb, you and I were talking about how you kind of run into trouble if it looks like the film is glorifying behaviors and areas that it shouldn't, such as Joker, Mm -hmm. the thing back to the 2019 release. Yeah. Yeah. Icky. (laughs) And just
1: very, mm -hmm. very icky.
4: We find that things that were maybe intended to be a cautionary tale once the credits roll aren't exactly doing that.
2: I kind of want to circle back to what you had brought up earlier, like what you got out of it, especially, you know, your first viewings when you were younger, whatever. I guess for me, it wasn't as much the financial success, but it reinforced a lot of ideas about masculinity and manhood and what it meant to be a man when I was a child, especially, I think, growing up in the church, because that's not like very explicitly shown in the movie, but they are... Pretty religious. Yeah, like they're, they're the Catholics. They're Catholics. The they're baptism Catholics. is like they're a very big Catholics. idea. And especially in the second movie, you see that even more so. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's like the well, you,
1: saints parade. You see it more with the older generation. Yes. Not as much with the younger generation.
2: And I feel like there's a, there's a very strong message to be taken from it as a young man. We are like, your job is to be the head of the family. Your job is to get married, have children, provide for them. Not necessarily be involved, but you need to do that. And I think especially the scene where Michael comes back to America and he goes back to Kay and he's like, come back with me. I want to get married. I want us to have children and stuff like that. We're
0: not going to talk about this woman I fell in love with. We're not going to talk about this wife that I had and
2: (laughs) I'm never going to bring it up. Part three.
1: They talk about it. He and Kay go to Corleone, Sicily. He shows her the church that he got married in. The the town his father was from, they talk about it. In part three, his son, Tony, stands up to him and says, "Dad, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm studying music. I've been doing it for three three years." Michael says to him, "But your your law degree is like insurance. Get the degree, and that way, you know, if this music thing doesn't, if it fizzles out, if you just decide you don't want to do it, you've got a you've got a law degree." And Tony says no He does the thing that Michael couldn't do He says I love you dad But it's my life Mm. And he walks away And then then part of the big setting Of the second half of the third part Is they're in Sicily to see Tony premiere At the Palermo Opera House Oh is that when his daughter gets killed? Yeah that's when his daughter gets killed because just more when you think against you're against out. More violence women. against women is a plot point, yeah. <laughs> His daughter's running a multi-million dollar corporate, uh, foundation at 19, 20, in the third part. The first movie set The Godfather up to be such a lightning rod for American cinema. In 2007, it was named the second greatest American film of all time by the American Film Association, right behind Citizen King. Mm-hmm. Part One was, but part three, for as much as people hate it, and i'm I'm having a really hard time understanding why which is why I keep coming back to it? Maybe I should watch it again. that's been years. Mm-hmm. When you come into it with this more sophisticated understanding of the first one in particular and then a, and then a, a good understanding of the second one, the third one makes a whole heck of a lot more sense. And what I find very interesting, you bringing up the church, Michael goes back to the church. In the third one, a lot of the plot points center around his relationship with the church and him trying to find some kind of redemption for himself. He's trying so hard, but he also won't let go of the idea that I will send my soul to hell to keep my children safe, to keep my family safe. And that has been his downfall the entire time. It's why he agreed to join his father. It is this idea that he, for some reason, by damning himself, can redeem someone else. And that's not how that works in any way.
4: Yeah. And it frames the story in a context that gets us in trouble in so many different areas and just that it frames the world in zero-sum terms.
0: It is. It's because of power and agency. When you believe you are the only one responsible in a situation in which there are other independent adults and you are taking ownership and taking away their freedom to make their own choices and be accountable for their decisions, you're just digging yourself a hole and you keep digging deeper because you assume that you are the most responsible. You are the most important. You are the... I'm the head of this family. I get to
2: make all the decisions. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And because he won't see dignity in the people around him, I feel like, and I haven't seen the third one, but I would assume that that's part of what makes it so difficult to express genuine remorse and move forward in the situation versus just like, I'm going to keep trying different, I'm going to do different surface level things with the same methodology and expect a new result.
1: (laughs) That is Michael's downfall. And in the third part, you see other people start doing it to him. There's a scene. He ends up in the hospital because of a diabetic stroke. While he's in the hospital, his successor makes a decision that Michael did not want to make. Michael said, I would never have made that decision. You should not have made that decision. Not while I'm alive and I'm head of this family.
0: Because it's about power, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Everything's about power. Even when he's, when, even when he's done, when he's I getting out. Control. It's still about the power. And when, when people start taking that away from him, he, he, he starts to scramble to find this new way of doing things. And he, incidentally, in his, in, his, in his just mad dash to scramble to figure out how to maintain his power, he finds a way to actually find some joy before the rest of the world implodes on him and everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Mm. Which is just the nature of the beast, I suppose. There's a little bit of that American moralistic aspect that's a holdover I think from the old 1930s gangster films because the old 1930s gangster films always ended with the gangster getting his comeuppance in some way usually with a lot of bullet holes Michael gets his comeuppance in the end of the, in the, end of the trilogy he does finally get it but in the sense that he's, he dies sad broken powerless and alone and this is the film the very first one is the film that we still to this day get to have probably our most serious conversations about
2: there's definitely a discussion of toxic masculinity. It's kind of rooted in this discussion of power because mm-hmm. that's where a lot of it comes from. You know you can't ever show emotion, you can't ever be weak, especially around other males because it's you always have to have the most power in the room and be in charge of everything it's false yes it's it's, it's false, completely false
0: but it is perpetuated by films that we continue to herald as the greatest movies of all time right like oh yeah we aren't backing down from saying that this is a this is a good movie and not taking a moment to say it's a great movie and we don't want to move forward with perpetuating this value system anymore. There's a way to hold both of those perspectives at the same time. It just takes more work and more thought and more effort. (laughs) So we're not going to do it because that doesn't make it easy. It takes critical thought. Yes. It's not an easy conversation to have because it's upsetting and disrupting a lot of the things that we, it's like the water we swim in, right? Like we take for granted that these are the values perpetuated in culture and it's challenging personally and, culturally to challenge them.
2: So I don't want to get too current eventsies with things, (laughs) but there was a thing that just happened this past weekend where a male perpetuated violence as, you know, a standard reaction, and there was a lot of commentary on it, and I saw both sides. I saw people saying that, you know, assaulting someone is a perfectly valid response.
4: Toxic masculinity. There you go. Yeah. When you have also... If we're bringing up the most recent Oscars and we're having a conversation about we The Godfather, are. Oh, we're 100 We are. do we do need to also just I am thrilled to see that we now have two women at the table in Rita Moreno and Ariana DeBose, which is the table of a, a character that has had two separate actors both win Academy Awards for playing that character on two separate occasions. Vito Corleone Vito is Corleone. the first. And sat at that table alone for decades (laughs) after Brando and De Niro until finally in 2020, Joaquin Phoenix and Heath Ledger became the second pair with the Joker. And now we also have Anita from West Side Story.
0: It is interesting to see, though, just in that group, like you mentioned, the Joker has come up twice in this conversation. And I just
4: I'm in the room. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think so too, but it's
0: also like but it's you're not, not just isolated, though. Mm. Like it's connected to facts that are part of the Godfather discussion. I just think it's interesting to take a step back and consider what we continue to herald as the best of the best in our media.
4: You give me too much credit because almost an hour ago, I almost connected the Godfather to succession via super troopers and the word shenanigans.
2: Well, it's interesting, too, because you said, you know, Citizen Kane is the other... That's the Citizen movie Kane that's, is held up as the It's the only one, one you know, American. rated higher yeah. than The Godfather. And that, too, is about a man who uses violence and, you know, aggressive means to get what he wants. I think it's part
1: of a commentary on an American culture.
2: Well, that's, yeah, I was going to say, that's kind of, isn't that the American dream? It's Where it's, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and achieve no. anything? That thing
1: that's actually physically impossible. Yes, and so much of it. the
4: media that we hail points out that it's lonely at the top. Yeah. And we still mm-hmm.
1: keep trying there to is. reach the top. Yep. And that's one of the biggest differences. It makes no sense, does it? <laughs> one of the biggest differences between actual Shakespeare and, and what we laud as Shakespearean.
2: I think it's telling that you and I have the same favorite scene in The Godfather Part 1 which is the very quiet moment when Clemenza is just
1: teaching Michael how to cook. Teaching Michael how to cook, yeah. Oh. That is my favorite scene in The Godfather. Of uh-huh. it's our, it is yeah. our favorite. We discussed yeah. this on Five Families. It's that scene where, Mike, where Clemenza says, hey, Michael, get over here. And you never know, you might have to cook for 10 guys someday. Because you fry up your sausage, and you take your tomatoes, and put it in the pan, get a little bit of wine, and then here's the trick kid, sugar. And when I cooked dinner for all of us, after we, we yeah. took in the movie... Um, I 100% followed Clemenza's uh, uh, Mm -hmm. recipe with some of my own flair. (laughs) But I love that scene because that's the relationships. Let's take out the fact that these are all gangsters. Yes. These are all men who are evil in a sense. But they are. They're evil. They're not Mm -hmm. good people. Mm -hmm. But that relationship, one man teaching another in this sense of community amongst all of these guys that is the scene. Those are the relationships we should be trying to. And take I have out so
2: many. This. I have so many friendships like that because right before that is when he's talking to Kay on the phone and he won't tell her he loves her because he's around all these other right masculine now. men. Nice, yeah, and so I he know. hangs up and Clemenza teases <laughs> the out of him it. he's like, Michael, Michael, why won't you tell to that nice lady, lady, you, love you love her? I love, I love you, so much. Love my heart. I'm gonna die if, <laughs> if I, don't I don't see, see you soon. You, I'm gonna die. <laughs> and I have so many of my friendships are that way where we love each other and it's just. You just joss each other all the time. You're just
1: teasing each other constantly. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can have this idea, this very true idea. Not even I. There is a truth into what you said. The Godfather is, and it is, without a doubt, an influential landmark of a movie. Mm -hmm. A brilliant piece from a technical standpoint of American cinematography.
2: And performances and the performances.
1: Everything about it, almost everything about it. The way it builds tension, the score. Mm -hmm. The score is brilliant. It is painful to watch. It is propagating ideas that are really difficult to grapple with. Mm -hmm. These two things are true. They don't contradict each other. But they are definitely something that 50 years later we need to be much more aware of than the audiences who saw it in 1972. Yep. Yep who lined up around the block and broke the theater's stagnation with one movie
5: I was just the age of 16 when I first went on the drive after six months hard labor at home I When
0: I am hungry And I'll
5: drink When I am dry Get drunk Whenever I to roam, cause I'm a river driver and I'm far away from home. When I am old and feeble and in my sickness lie, just wrap me up in a blanket and lay me down to die.
1: The track you just heard was The River Driver from the Ragtag Bunch's album, The Ragtag Bunch, live at the Tiger Room. You can catch the Bunch back at the Tiger Room on May 21st of this year. Tickets are available online. You have to go to eventbrite.com and put the Ragtag Bunch in the search bar. You can also catch the Bunch at J.K. O'Donnell's on the last Thursday of every month. I should probably introduce who is on the mics with me. Uh, We have in the studio with us today, my lovely wife, Georgia Stahoski, joining us to talk about her absolute obsession of a TV show called Fringe, which incidentally has turned into one of my obsessions. So you introduced me to Fringe when I was a junior in high school, but what was your first exposure to Fringe before we get into like your favorite episode and what you love about the show?
3: So I came into Fringe, let's see, it aired in 2008. So that was my freshman year of high school, which was awesome because I just came out of junior high reading a bunch of Edgar Allan Poe. So gore and mystery and stuff was like right up my alley at that point. And I just was a diehard fan. I loved the storyline. I loved the characters. I grew up watching crime shows and NCIS, Law and Order, CSI, all those things. So an FBI show with also, all the sci-fi elements in it was perfect.
1: For the people out there who don't know what Fringe is, and there's there's a fair number of them, unfortunately, mm-hmm. what the heck is Fringe? How do you even begin to describe it? Very often when people ask me, and you've heard me say this plenty of times, I say it's J.J. Abrams' love letter to the X-Files. But if you don't know what the X-Files is, or if you never really watched it, how would you describe Fringe to A non-fringian.
3: Because it features one of the main characters is an FBI agent. So it has all like the cop FBI show vibes mixed with fringe sciences. So like pushing the boundaries of science to the fringe, the edge. So you have like cloning. They have all sorts of biomedical
1: Chemical, yeah, who's it's and what's it's, yeah, lots of, lots of Dr. Uh,
3: Frankenstein vibes bringing people back from the dead because you know, after, six, after hours, six hours, you're, you're really dead, dead, which is a reference to like the pilot, to, like, the very first, yeah, season. it's great.
1: Well, like in the pilot, they <laughs> melt a plane full of people,
3: yeah, pretty much, yeah, they, yeah, which was
1: just completely horrific to watch. Fringe definitely pushed the boundary of what they could show graphics wise on primetime television,
3: it was incredible because. They weren't going to get a fifth season. They'd been moved to the death slot on a Friday night, which, I mean, who watches the TV show on a Friday night? Most people usually don't, except for me. Um, It's fine. Um, (laughs) And so they'd moved to the death slot. So, of course, their ratings tanked. And by pure fan love alone, did they actually get renewed for that fifth season? And it was only like half a season, but they crammed it all in. So the pacing's kind of odd to start out with. fifth season's... Fru- but for that reason. The very first time we watched it. Yes. You thought you missed something. I, I 100% had missed something. because <laughs> they crammed Everybody it. had missed something because
1: yeah. they just kind of said previously on Fringe and filled in 12 stuff episodes worth seen. of content yes. into a 30 second Which is previously sad, on Fringe. But, but it was know.
3: well done still. Yeah. And I love how they brought in stuff from the very first season to the end.
1: But what is Fringe? Is it a, is it a crime show? Is it a, a character <laughs> drama? Is it a. A medical show.
3: Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's that, but also like it comes back to a story. I mean, J.J. Abrams does this throughout lots of his shows. It comes back to a lot of father son dynamics, a lot of familial dynamics come into play, even if everybody's not related at all. And I think that kind of just ties it all together in the way that it is so you know you got the cop vibes you got the weird sciency creepy stuff happening and then in the midst of it all you have these relationships of these people
1: mm-hmm. one of the things i think that french did very differently from your standard crime of the week cop shows that the focus was always more on the characters than the crime yeah. you know as opposed to like ncis where the focus was the mystery of the day the crime of the day and then the interpersonal relationships kind of followed afterwards fringe is very much focused on the relationships between the main characters and so before we dive into your favorite episode we should probably maybe introduce a little bit about the main
0: characters
3: yes okay so it starts out the main main character is agent olivia dunham who's played by anna torv she hasn't done too much else from what i've looked up um australian actress i saw a meme when i was like prepping for talking to you guys and it said the best thing that fringe could have done whenever they cast anna torv was casting her again because so like jj abrams, J. abrams yeah. fashion you
1: <laughs> get parallel dimensions yes and different timelines, time jumps and all kinds of timey <laughs> which i love wobbly, i love that so much but yeah, yeah. It, it makes for a very very entertaining so she show. plays
3: different versions of herself mm-hmm. and but she subtly changes her body language she changes the way she speaks it's incredible. I, I think it's really amazing how she does that. So that's the main main character, right? Yeah,
1: so, a female FBI agent, oh yeah. which in and of itself is out of the norm, which and is Plays great. a big part of her it's refreshing.
3: character. Yes, yes. So that's the main one. The next main character that we meet in the show um, is Peter Bishop. He is the son of Walter Bishop, who is another main character. But Peter Bishop is played by Joshua Jackson. And you know him from...
1: Yeah, the very first time uh, many of us will have seen... P- uh, Joshua Jackson is as the main kid character in the original Mighty Ducks,
3: which I did not experience growing up. But you have, but it, I saw and you it. You were like, times.
1: "What?" And when I finally <laughs> made that connection, I went, "Oh, no wonder he looks so familiar." Um, again, not a ton of acting credits to no, to not his really. name. I mean, kid actor. He did all three of the Mighty Duck movies, I think. And then his father
3: is Walter, Walter Bishop, Bishop Doctor Walter Bishop, who is was fondly called by uh, Peter at one point as Dr. Frankenstein. So you're telling
1: me my father is Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah, <laughs> and, I think he says Ol- that in the very first And Olivia episode too. Is,
3: doesn't even say anything, and he's like, great. <laughs> uh-huh. But Walter is played by none other than John Noble, which he has several roles, but the most common, like, most similar, like, father mm, crazy man is Lord Dynothor from Lord of the Rings. Yep.
1: So that's your main character cast. So you've got... Yep, main three. Crazy, psycho, spent 17 years in a state institution. He's not really psycho, but he's crazy.
3: He he is. I mean, like, well, Dr. okay, Bishop. so spending that much time in an institution will do that to you. Right. But also, he was admitted there because of... Because he was
1: criminal. It was a criminal insanity charge.
3: Yes. And then he, and he, he pled insanity. insanity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Which is debatable. And then you get his son
1: who was... Is... Got an IQ of Einstein. And And
3: he's been in and out of... He's a con artist. He has stuff going on with the mob and some guy named Big Eddie.
1: Oh, no. His name is legally Big Eddie. Yeah, Yeah. He changed
3: it. Yeah. How do they get connected? How do they come together? So they come across, like you said, the first situation is this plane of melted people, which is awful. And Olivia's partner, John... Also, got partially meltified, and so his skin is like translucent. And, like, what the heck is going on? Meltified. It's creepy. That is
1: now an official word.
3: You're welcome. And so they start trying to figure this out, and Olivia is desperate because she and John were not just business partners. And so she randomly fi- comes across Walter's research, and then Walter's <laughs> stuck in the mental institution. How do you get him out? You got to get legal consent from a family member Mexican. so she flies to baghdad finds peter and he's like i'd rather stay here in baghdad mind you this is 2008 um <laughs> so we are still in yeah he so said, i'd rather stay here than see my father again and so she basically is like well i have this file
1: she blackmails him into coming back <laughs> to the u.s and that's the setup for the whole and there's show there's no file it's fine and that's, and, yeah. and the rest is history yeah so then moving ahead a little bit your favorite episode of fringe happens in season two and you and i watched that last night yep when we're recording this so a saturday night this episode is very much the heart of what the, the entire series is
3: yeah oh um, yeah
1: so tell me a little bit about this episode so
3: this episode is called the white tulip and it's my absolute favorite episode and actually i haven't gotten a tattoo yet but if i would it would probably be of the white tulip featured in this episode it could be a standalone if you wanted to just watch This episode is kind of a taste of what Fringe is. It could be a standalone. There's only a little bit of a spoiler, but if you aren't paying too close of attention, you won't catch the exact spoiler in the episode. So yeah, this episode contains so many different features of what Fringe is. Starts Mm -hmm. out with...
1: It also features RoboCop, I have to mention.
3: Yes. And we looked this up just out of curiosity to see if there's any fun little tidbits about that actor, about this episode. And he was originally not going to do it. And his wife, who is a Fringe fan, was like, I'm sorry, this episode's incredible, it's well-written, and I think that you would be great for it. And also, like, it talks about how much a man loves his wife, Mm -hmm. which she's his wife telling him to do it, so. It has the typical Fringe start out, like any show at that time, right? You get the weird, creepy stuff at the beginning.
1: Bad stuff first.
3: So, in this case, it's a guy getting off a train, and a trench coat, who is the... The main guy who we're talking about. I don't. Uh... Alistair Peck. Alistair Peck. Yes, name. which is a great name. Alistair Peck. So he's just getting off this train, and this teenage boy goes in and sees all these people who are just dead.
1: They're all completely dead. Well, it starts with it's Alistair great. Peck just kind of materializing in yes, the train into car. Into the train car. You're right. You're right. You just kind of pop, he's there. And then everybody's dead. And then we're all like, oh,
3: no. Bad and of day. course, they call the FBI because it's weird. Like, people are just completely dead. It's not normal dead. It's completely and utterly dead. The lights are out. All of the batteries and stuff are zapped dead right there, too, of all the computers and phones. And just in that train car mm-hmm. where he appeared. And then they follow him and try and find him. And and, and they do. some timey-wimey stuff happens. Yeah, and then they find
1: him and he blips out. Yeah. And we're back in the train On car. On the
3: train. And we get some lovely different perspectives. We get to watch
1: the whole thing over again. From
3: other characters like but from different things yes. happening at the same see time. See different
1: things happen but it's the that would have already happened. Yes. And
3: and then they track him down again and he's wiped the boards clean and his in his apartment, and he's right. done all these things, taken out all the stuff that they could try and figure out what's going on.
1: The the long story short, they find him again and this time Walter talks to him. Uh, Walter basically After they figure out John his Newell, motive. They kind of figure out what he's trying to do and he is trying to go back in time. To stop a car crash that killed his fiance, but every time he time jumps, it uses a massive, a massive amount of electrical power that it just absorbs from everything around it when he lands. Mm -hmm. Which is why all the people in the train died. He quite literally sucked the energy out of their body
3: because he needed that energy for the jump. Which they explain, and they make all the and his his rationalization
1: is that every time he jumps, he wipes that slate. If he jumps back, they are no longer dead. Yeah. And uh, you know, okay. Yet. <laughs> right. They're not dead yet.
3: Well, Walter talks to him mm-hmm. and he's planning to jump into the middle of this field that's empty because he happened to be there that day. Mm-hmm. And so it would just suck out all the biological life, all the plants and stuff would just be dead. But um, no people. Yeah, no right. people. Big caveat there. So of course the FBI, meanwhile, there's lots of door breaking down in this. Lots episode of door breaking down. Because this mm-hmm. guy just single handedly like wiped out like at least thirty people, right? Yeah. like what the heck that's not we're just gonna shoot him like what's gonna happen like that's not good
1: yeah he has the ability to just pop out of the room right yeah whenever he wants to so it's a liability <laughs> big liability yeah
3: so long and the short of it is he gets back to his girl runs from that hot air balloon in the middle of this field and where he blipped it out because he was in the field because there was a hot air balloon anyways it's you'll get it when you watch the show <laughs> and he gets to the car and he tells her he loves her because the last conversation they had was a fight and then the car hits them both. Yeah, he both doesn't die. actually
1: stop the car crash. No. And part of the big focus of the episode is that conversation between him and Dr. Bishop where Walter relays that he's been holding on to the secret of what happens when you tamper with the natural law so much so that there are huge repercussions. Yeah, And at that point in the show, you've already figured out as the viewer what walter did and for the sake of not completely spoiling a big part of the show we're not going to tell you what walter did
3: right you'll have to watch it that's the other side of this episode Mm -hmm. so we talked about the fringiness right the interpersonal character such things is walter writing this letter to peter his son And he's going to tell him this big secret, right? He has filled this letter with it. And we get to watch this letter like fall out of his pocket in that train as they're like looking at these dead people, sadly. And then other people finding it and Peter almost discovering it twice Mm because we had to watch that scene twice. And so it's like the emotional tugging of like, yes, I have also experienced a secret that I've been trying to find a way to tell somebody before. And like, oh, no, it's almost discovered, but not in the time that I want So he's struggling with this thing, right? And by the end of it, he decides, all right, I'm not going to tell him. It'll just be kind of what it will be. The whole point of this episode is Walter shares with Dr. Peck that he has been waiting on a sign from God, essentially, which they kind of laugh about.
1: There's a a really cool conversation where Alistair Peck, a.k.a. Robocop... Is telling Walter that they don't need a God. They have science. Science is his God. And Walter's going, no, I think I have discovered an idea of God. And I have, through my experimentation, offended this idea that I have of God. And I need to ask him for his forgiveness. And if he can forgive me by showing me this sign, then maybe my son can forgive me too. And that sign is the name of the episode. It's that White Tulip. White Tulip. To which Dr. Peck responds, Well, it's the wrong time of the year for tulips white or otherwise. Yes. But then he he does eventually jump. He
3: somehow manages to take extra time. Now I don't know how this works because time travel. Time travel. But you know it's fine. He somehow manages to take the time to mail a letter to one of his associates at MIT, MIT where he worked. And he trusted her to be able to forward this letter to mail this onward to Walter on that date when they met, because whenever he would reset everything to meet his wife and die, then they would not be investigating him because he would be dead.
1: Right. He did so stop. He, but the car he
3: crashed. knows the date that Walter would be searching for this answer. Mm-hmm. So Walter finishes this letter. No phone call interrupts him to go and investigate a. Situation on a train.
1: Yeah, he finishes his letter to Peter. Tosses
3: it in the fire, and then literally the mail comes and he picks up the letter, rips it open, it's addressed to him, and it's the white tulip. And that's kind of where it leaves us hanging because he had just decided to not tell Peter through letter, but now he's gotten his sign. So Mm -hmm. he's going to have to tell Peter. But it's just that sign of forgiveness and that fact that, like, you know, people can forgive you Mm -hmm. if you give them the chance. But you know, if you don't ever tell them, then you don't ever give them the chance.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot, there's a lot more there than just your average yeah. crime of the week. Oh yeah, cop show. Which there's nothing wrong with those. Oh, yeah, those are always entertaining. But
3: yeah. a lot of levels of, a lot of depth to the characters, to the interpersonal relationships, and then that gets exacerbated through into the other universes too.
1: This entire episode is like a little microcosm of what Fringe is yes. as a whole. Yes. Um, would you say that is probably why it's your favorite, or
3: I like it because the timey wimey. You like the timey wimey stuff. Honestly, I mean, so the third Harry Potter book and movie are my fav were my favorite for a very long time. When I reread them, I actually like the later ones more. I think that's part of growing up, but mm-hmm. um, the third was my favorite because of the Time Turner. Oh yeah. Right. So right, I fair. like watched this episode, and then when they tossed us right in the exact same scene for the train, I'm like, wait, yes.
1: I do remember watching the episode for it was... the first time and being very confused. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute, we already so, saw this.
3: It's so great. It's so great. So we don't explain how he does it. He, like, puts machinery into oh, his yeah. body. In true,
1: in true fringe fashion, it's he gross. literally turns himself into a time machine. It's And, like, quite, what quite did say,
3: Faraday, yeah, they say, a fair day? Yeah, they toss around a bunch of astrophysics yeah, of course, and, that and, could and quantum potentially physics th- terms
1: that may or may not be yeah, accurate. I didn't make study it work. quantum physics, so I have no clue.
3: yeah. So I love the timey-wiminess, and I also love just the depth of the characters and the acting. All of them play themselves perfectly in yeah. that episode.
1: Thank you for dropping in on the on the mics with us. Oh, yeah. Uh, you
3: if you know, want more, let me know, because Fringe is great.
1: Fringe is amazing. If you've not watched it's Fringe, worth it. you need it's to do this. It's so
3: worth it. I mean, okay, first episode pilot is the longest, but otherwise they're like 45 minutes pop.
1: Yeah, the pilot was like a double feature.
3: Yeah, but it's... It's also really. It's it's, they, it's so much. They draw so much from that episode and just season one as a whole. At the very end, even
0: mm-hmm. it's incredible. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community.
1: Check out the SB blog, past episodes. Reach out, leave a comment, send a message, especially for the spotlights. We reach out to friends and people in our various social orbits for episode and spotlight content, but it's so cool when you come to us too. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com.
4: You can support our team on Patreon. There are new projects in the works, and my goal is to have some of those available on Patreon by the end of April. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke.
2: Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcast by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions.
0: Everyone has a story.
1: These are some of our favorites,
2: and this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
4: Wayne Shout Productions
5: Wayne Shout